I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 58. Today in the show, we're joined by Russ Mason of the Michigan DNR to discuss deer diseases and the challenges of managing a state's whitetail herd. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Now today on the show, as I just mentioned, we're going to be joined by Russ Mason, the Chief Wildlife Officer for the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, and I wanted to get him on the phone with us today to discuss a number of things. Most timely though, we'll be discussing deer diseases, specifically CWD and EHD, and this is particularly relevant right now because just as of last week, it was announced that the first case of CWD in a wild deer in Michigan was discovered, and this has triggered a lot of concern across my home state. So today we'll be talking to Russ all about that, as well as other diseases such as EHD and a number of other challenges that are faced by someone in his position who's trying to manage a deer herd from the state level. So it's going to be a super interesting conversation. I'm excited about it. Um, But before we get to all that, Dan, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. Really? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty good. I've got about four hours of sleep in the past 48 hours. (laughs) So... Wow. That sounds so like... this is this is fake enthusiasm. All right. You're doing a pretty good job of it then. I know. So uh I have to be like this or if the the alternative is I just start dropping F bombs and cursing and and <laughs> So uh, a typical wired hunt podcast then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I uh I I don't envy your sleep situation, that's for sure. <laughs> but enough about that. We are in inside 90 days before we go to Idaho. Really? Yep. That's kind of crazy. I did not realize it was coming up that soon. Right. Well, right. to be honest, though, it's not that long till all of us are in Idaho. You know? What's that mean? Well, it means I'm in Idaho right now. Well, I, I know. <laughs> but you got to come back to get me. I do. 
<laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Not going to yeah, make me drive 18 hours by myself. That'd be kind of funny, though, just to drop that on you like a couple days beforehand. Hey, just by the way, I'm just going to stay out here. Oh, cool. Thanks, Mark. Sweet. Yeah. Hope you enjoy getting punched in the face when I see you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how do I sound, by the way? This is the first time I've recorded from my new uh, uh, temporary studio. Right. And I, I just want to make a quick announcement here that Mark is recording from Idaho and in some beautiful, glorious mountains. And I'm in my basement surrounded by like a, a bucket full of baby diapers and it's like <laughs> one one chewed shed that I thought would be a good decoration for this bedroom that I'm in. <laughs> well, sounds like we're both living the dream, Dan. <laughs> yeah, living the dream. Amen. Oh, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, there's nothing right. I can say. I can just there's say There's nothing I can do. No. <laughs> Go on a vacation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go on a vacation. But yeah, since we last chatted, I drove like 2,000 miles across the country. And uh, now I'm sitting here on the Wyoming-Idaho line, just on the edge of the mountains, and uh, enjoying a little bit of uh, fresh air and adventure for a couple months. So the one thing I'm going to miss, though, I was thinking, you know, was the fact that I'm not going to be able to drive around and do my, you know, deer drives like I usually do, looking for big velvet white tails or check my trail cameras and everything. So I'm gonna have to live that part of my life vicariously through you for the next couple of weeks. So fill you me can, in. Uh, you can live through me all you want. Um, right now, if you want to live through me, you can uh, get sleep deprivation and uh, <laughs> and uh, like it, you know, with kids, it's all about milestones. Like, like my son just had his biggest poopy diaper ever. So that's good because we know his bowel movements are, are where they're supposed to be at, you know, yeah, milestones. Yeah. That's the, <laughs> <those are> the <laughs> best kind of milestones, right? The fecal matter type. <laughs> yep, exactly. exactly. I got peed on yesterday. So, oh, you know, we're good. just hitting par. We're, hit, we're playing par golf here with Once. life. Hey, it could be worse. It could be worse. I could be in Idaho in a mountain uh, instead of scouting for whitetail, scouting for mule deer. Right. That's a double bogey that I'm handling right now. Exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah. <Your> sucks. <laughs> I've been pretty fortunate that's worked out that I'm able to do this. So it'll be it'll be cool. I'll keep you updated and the listeners, and there'll be some interesting things, a little non-whitetail related going on out here. But every once in a while, you need a slight change of scenery. So that's right. So that's what I'm going to be doing here. But we've got some important whitetail stuff to discuss today, Dan. Um, as you know, and as I think a lot of people know, it's been in the news a lot. CWD was discovered in my home state in a wild, free-ranging deer for the first time. So it's got a whole lot of talk going on right now about CWD. And, and you know, you and I had talked about this just a few weeks ago when we talked through, you know, the things that were discussed at the North American Deer Summit and the captive deer industry and CWD was a big part of that. Um, and so it's it's relatively timely or it's unfortunate, but it, it's, uh, ironic maybe that this is now happening, happening in the real world just after we talked about, you know, the risks of it potentially showing up. So right. it's a concern. And what was the last major state that had a case of this Wisconsin? Well, Wisconsin's had it for a, for a pretty long time now. And, and that's, I think, you know, as far as I've seen, that's the, the, the largest outbreak that's been affecting whitetails has been Wisconsin because they had some major issues, you know, in the early 2000s, and they had some, some significant management changes that their DNR put in place to, to try to control that. Um, but I know it's been popping up in different places. Um, I know it's popped up in deer farms in Iowa, in Ohio, um, 
a few places like that. So I know it's, it's here and there. Um, but the free ranging deer is the scarier thing, which definitely was what was happening in Wisconsin and now in Michigan. So it's one of those things that keeps on happening. And CWD has been around for a while and, and popping up in small isolated cases. But um, the the greater concern is that if it starts spreading, you know, it's not something that is easily managed. But um, but I'm I'm no expert on the topic, and that's really why we're having this episode today with our guest Russ Mason, who's the chief wildlife officer for the Michigan DNR, and he is dealing with this situation right now since his organization. The DNR is responsible, you know, as, as far as I understand, is going to be responsible for managing this issue. So I'm hoping that rather than me try to talk about CWD, um, Russ can tell us about, you know, what's happening, how it's happening, what the plan is. Um, and then, you know, we can talk about some different things, too, regarding what he does. You know, also, he dealt with a lot of EHD issues back in 2012. I know you guys in Iowa got hit hard that year. Michigan got hit hard. Um, so I want to pick his brain a little about that. And then, I mean, hey, we've got someone from the DNR, a wildlife agency representative on the line. So there's a lot of things I think that, you know, you and me have talked about, too, about that relationship between hunters and those agencies. And maybe we can pick his brain a little bit about that, too. So I think there's going to be a lot for us to talk about. Yeah, no doubt. Let's get him on the phone. Yeah, I say we should stop beating around the bush and give Russ a call. Before we get to that, though, we need to pause briefly to thank our sponsors of this episode of the Wired Hunt podcast, Redneck Blinds. Now, I own one of Redneck's Elevated Predator box blinds, one of their new hay bale blinds, and a couple of their portable hunting chairs. And I gotta say, these things are a joy to hunt from. And this month, in honor of Father's Day, Redneck Blinds is going to offer Wired Hunt listeners a special discount on their bale blinds and hunting chairs. From now until June 30th, if you head to redneckblinds.com and use the promo code WIRED, that's W-I-R-E-D, you'll get $100 off any bale blind or $10 off one of their portable hunting chairs. So just add the promo code WIRED at checkout and you'll get that sweet little discount. And interestingly, One of my very best hunting memories of my dad, which I created just a few months ago while turkey hunting with him, actually happened while we were hunting in my bail blind and sitting in my redneck chair. So it seems very fitting that Wired Hunt listeners will be getting a deal on these two products for Father's Day. So again, head to redneckblinds.com and use promo code WIRED, W-I-R-E-D. Now, let's get chatting with Russ Mason. All right, with us on the line now is Russ Mason of the Michigan DNR. Welcome to the show, Russ. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really glad you can join us. Um, There's a lot of things on our minds, and I know a lot of our listeners' minds, that I think you can really help us understand. So we're excited to have you on the line. Um, But before we dive into all these different things going on right now, can you tell us just a little bit about what you do with with the Michigan DNR and what you're responsible for? Well, the Michigan DNR is comprised of a a number of divisions. I'm the chief for the wildlife division. There's also a forestry division, a law enforcement, a parks and recreation, uh, and a fisheries division. Uh, What wildlife division does is essentially manage wildlife and their habitats across the state of Michigan. We have about 430,000 acres of state game areas in the southern lower peninsula that we manage exclusively, and we co-manage about 4 million acres of land in the in the northern lower peninsula and across the UP. We co-manage in partnership with our forest resources division. Unlike a lot of states, 
All of these various components are in one department, so it gives us a really good opportunity to come up with optimal solutions that both benefit timber production and wildlife. And that's important if you consider that timber production in the state of Michigan is a $16 billion business, and fishing and hunting is about a $4.7 billion business on an annual basis. Wow. So you've got a lot of different groups you have to work with and interests that you have to balance, I imagine. We work with a lot of people and a lot of interests. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an important piece to remember that most people see natural resources and wildlife through the lens of public land, not through perhaps other experiences. So it's, it's pretty important to get it right and also to provide an experience that's both high quality and a little bit educational so folks come to understand what it takes to produce uh, outstanding conservation and, and sustainable wise use. Yeah. So, so Wired to Hunt, this podcast, is really focused on whitetail deer hunting. So from the deer hunting side of things in Michigan, what, what do you do related to deer? Uh, it's more like what don't we do with related to deer. The uh, uh, wildlife division uh, is is very focused on, on, on deer management. This state has, oh golly, uh, close to 700,000 deer hunters, um, and uh, they're spread out across the state. Uh, it is uh, the slowest uh, shrinking part of hunting in the state. You know, we lose about 2% of our deer hunters on an annual basis. We've lost 50% of our small game hunters in the last 12 years. The average Michigan hunter only hunts deer. They don't hunt it as hard as I'd like them to. It's about four days a year, and that includes scouting. And they want to shoot about 2.2 deer. So what do we do? Actually, we spend an awful lot of time doing management in the UP. The UP, of course, is a place of challenges. There's hard winters, you know, 300 inches of snow on the west side. Uh, and so we are very engaged in making sure that deer have critical wintering habitat that they can migrate into, and not just on state land. So the state controls about 20% of those critical habitats. Private lands are about 80%. So, in fact, we've been working through an advisory group with ourselves, commercial forest properties, non-industrial forest properties, uh, tribal entities, and others to try to get more and better conservation on those lands. In the northern lower peninsula, of course, we do all kinds of things for, for deer, and it turns out for other species that have similar requirements. Uh, 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 grouse and woodcock, for example, come to mind. Across southern Michigan, the nutritional plane is, of course, very high. It's more like Indiana or Ohio. Uh, and so we, we probably invest a little bit less money in, in, in deer habitat, per se, in the southern part of the state because of the amount of agriculture and other things going on. That, having said that, though, we are very interested, for example, in working with private landowners and developing co-ops in fact, we partnered with uh, QDMA, Pheasants Forever, and Michigan United Conservation Clubs. We have a co-op coordinator who, where we're trying to work across the, the topics of deer and pheasants, because it turns out there are things you can do for both, and try to put together private lands, perhaps close to some of our state game areas, to uh, improve opportunities, remembering that I told you a little bit about our hunters. The part I didn't tell you was that close to 80% of our hunters in this state hunt only or primarily on private land. And a lot of that hunting, of course, happens in southern Michigan. 
Yeah, we actually had Anna, that uh, co-op specialist, on the podcast two weeks ago. So she got to tell us all about what she was doing and what you guys are working on in, in some of these parts of the state, and that was pretty cool. So, Yeah, she's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so you mentioned that the challenges up in the northern uh, lower peninsula and in the UP, and I know there's a lot of things going on there. And I know there's a lot of things we'd probably talk to you about just working with all these different groups of hunters and setting, you know, the right expectations and all the different things that go into managing a state's deer herd. But the thing I think that's top of mind for me and people definitely within the state of Michigan, but also in states all over the country is the topic of chronic wasting disease, CWD, especially given the news last week that the first case in a free ranging wild deer in Michigan was found. So yeah, that's, Go ahead. I was just going to say, so so given that is you know top of mind for, for many of us, I was hoping to, to pick your brain a little bit about that, given the fact that you're kind of inside and, and dealing with this right now. Could you kind of help us set the playing field for everyone that maybe doesn't understand what actually was announced last week, or there's lots of rumors going around too. Can you just give us the the basics of what was discovered, how it was discovered, and, uh, and where things stand today in regards to this CWD incident in Michigan? Yeah, I, I can. I'll start by just setting the table for folks. I'm guessing there's somebody out there that hunts deer that doesn't know what CWD is. So just to begin that conversation, CWD is a corrupted protein. You can think of it a whole lot more like radioactive waste than you can uh, like a disease. It can be transmitted between animals, and if uh, soil is contaminated with feces or with urine, the soil becomes uh, infective. In fact, soil is more infective than animal-to-animal uh, -animal transmission, particularly when there's a lot of clay in the soil. As well, the prion can be translocated into plants, meaning taken up into plants, and plants are a perfectly competent vector to move prions around in the environment to make deer sick. Prions cannot be destroyed by cold. They cannot be destroyed by heat, except at unbelievably high temperatures. They cannot be destroyed by disinfectants. They cannot be destroyed by bleach. When we talk about human TSEs, these transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, and somebody's doing, say, a medical procedure on a human, on a, in a human TSC, they throw away the surgical equipment at the end of the procedure because there is no way to sterilize it afterwards. So we are dealing with a very persistent phenomenon. Uh, CWD was first described in 1967 in Fort Collins, Colorado, and mule deer, and uh, since then has spread across the country. It's now present in about 22 or 23 states and two Canadian provinces. Michigan, unfortunately, is the most recent example. We picked up a deer in Hazlitt, Michigan, which is a suburban uh, community near Lansing, uh, in the middle of April, we did some testing on that deer, and it came up CWD positive. We sent it along to the National Veterinary Services Laboratory in Ames, Iowa. They confirmed our, our diagnosis of a CWD positive deer. And so now we are involved in what I will call extremely active surveillance. And what that means is anything in the, in the three counties nearest to where this deer was found, any, any hunter there, there is no baiting and feeding in any of those counties. We will treat uh, those kinds of issues very severely. No deer can be moved outside of those three counties uh, because I don't want uh, CWD moved out. It turns out carcasses are a primary vector for the disease. Not only is it moved in live deer, it's moved in dead deer. 
uh, and it's moved in dead deer parts. That's a big deal for us. So we're going to try to contain it. Those three counties in there, Ingham, Shiawassee, and Clinton, no baiting or feeding. Closer to the index site, that is to say the nine townships closest to this place, we are picking up every roadkill. We are asking, actually requiring every single deer that hunters pick up to be taken to a check station so that we can take samples. What that means, that's code for take their heads. We'll allow folks to have skull caps, hides, uh, and meat if they, if they want them. Uh, we will conduct tests on that meat and get back to folks within two to three days so they know whether they have a positive or, 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 or a negative deer. Within two miles, we're engaging as well in active uh, sharpshooting of deer. We will take as many deer as we can find. There is no possibility, of course, of wiping out deer in an area, and furthermore, it wouldn't make any difference. I've just described how CWD in a contaminated environment is as infective as an animal. So you can clear animals out of a CWD area, other animals come in, they will acquire and express the disease. And by the way, as far as we know, the prion is never uh, taken out of the environment. It has to be covered up. It has to be buried. Something has to happen to it to physically present, prevent contact. Otherwise, it will continue to be there for decades. Uh, what do we anticipate if CWD is established? And that's the really scary part in all of this because uh, no state has been able to control C establish CWD. That's not in the cards. What would be in the cards is slowing the spread of the disease across the state. What we suspect will occur, based on the models and what we're now seeing in Colorado and Wyoming, is uh, an overall reduction in the herd population size. Most of the models suggest that that reduction could be upwards of 50%. And most of that reduction will be concentrated in the older age classes, and especially in butts. This, of course, is real troubling to guys that are interested in quality deer management. Uh, three or four decades from now, that may be a, a very quaint an extremely unachievable idea in many states where there's a CWD established in the free-ranging populations. What I expect will happen in southern Michigan is because we have a very high reproductive rate. Fawns actually are often have, you know, fawns in the same year. We won't see a huge drop or it'll be very slow over time. The bigger deal in southern Michigan is going to be um, – the change in the age structure in the population. As it moves north into the state, of course, we'll probably see changes in population size and age structure. So right now, again, what we're trying to do is understand if this is established, in which case we have to come up with containment strategies that essentially slow the spread of the disease. We won't eradicate it. We'll slow the spread. If it's not established and we can uh, uh, come to that conclusion, well, we've dodged a bullet, and that's, uh, that's, uh, that's sort of what we're hoping for. I could mention that in addition, in those three counties, all of the licenses will be discounted. There will be no limit, basically, on the number of antlerless licenses that an individual hunter can purchase. And within the nine uh, townships closest to the index case, disease control permits will be freely available for free, to anyone that has five acres of land or more to take as many deer as they possibly can or choose to do starting yesterday, literally yesterday. Wow. So I just want to make sure I understand a couple of things. Um, first off, is it accurate that you said that there will be sharpshooting starting like currently within two miles of that area to start reducing the deer herd right there and now? Is that true? Starting today. 
And so what's the, what's the goal? I know you said you can't possibly eliminate the deer herd, but it, it sounds like the, the immediate goal is to try to reduce the number of deer in that general area of contamination right now so as to potentially isolate anything that's infected. And so essentially eliminating or clearing as many of the deer out of that area as possible now. That's that's what's happening? Well, that's, that's sort of true, but not really. It turns out the spread of CWD isn't a density-dependent disease because, again, it, it contaminates the environment indefinitely as well. So what we're really trying to do at this point is understand what we're looking at. Are we looking at an individual isolated case? Um, CWD does not spontaneously occur. If you look at other of these TSEs, these transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, whether it's scrapie in sheep, uh, BSE in cattle, mad cow disease, or uh, Jakob Kreutzfeldt's uh, variants in humans, those diseases actually do tend to show some variance in some of the immune, what we call immunohistochemistry when we look at, at evidence of the prion. That has never been the case for CWD. It is always exactly the same thing. So this disease came to this location in some fashion. Uh, it could have come in a live deer. It could have come in an infected carcass that was illegally uh, transported across state lines. It could have come frankly, in uh, contaminated urine. Bow hunters, of course, use urine as an attractant in the fall, and some of that urine probably is CWD positive. And since you're spreading the urine, you know, if, I just told you it's, it's infective on the ground, perhaps more so than in animal-to-animal -animal transmission. So we're, we're actively trying to understand what we're looking at, an isolated case or not. We've got to get as many samples as we can to understand that. To put it in context, we have bovine tuberculosis established in the deer herd in the northeast lower peninsula. And this year, the rate was between 1% to 2%. That's 1% to 2 deer per 100. Uh, so actually, it's pretty uncommon to run across a TB-positive deer, despite the fact that they infect cattle herds. And it's almost impossible to eradicate, although, frankly, I would much rather deal with TB or EHD or any number of other diseases because they just kill animals and it's over with. You know, dead animals are dead animals. That is not true for CWD. Dead animals are infected, live animals are infected, and the environment in which those carcasses melt down or in which live animals pee on, all of those places are infective almost indefinitely. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So, so, you know, the, the situation you described a few minutes ago about, you know, if this is a case where it's, it's not isolated, if it's established, you mentioned the fact that this could, I think you had said potentially, in the future, reduce the deer herd by 50%, and it could significantly impact the age structure affecting, you know, older age class animals. Um, you know, when I look or when I hear about or read about CWD in other states like Wisconsin in places, it sounds like it hasn't had that impact, at least I don't think it's had that impact because of the fact that the state has taken extreme measures to reduce the population themselves in those areas. Is that is that accurate, or are there places in the country that are actually seeing those types of um, impacts naturally coming from yeah, this disease? The Front Range in Colorado and southeastern Wyoming is now seeing those kinds of population reduction impacts. We don't know what's going to happen in Wisconsin, although the counties closest to where the disease were identified, I believe they're approaching 50% infection rates in their buck population. And, I, I, you know, we don't know what the, what the outcome will be in Wisconsin. It's important to put into this conversation that there's absolutely no evidence that CWD can species jump, that it can affect humans. In fact, all we know about CWD is that it's very specific for mule deer, white-tailed deer, elk and moose. Uh, so, so right now we're beginning to see this. The real tragedy in this isn't that it's a disease that anyone hunting today is likely to see huge measurable impacts. Some probably might if it's an established disease. What this disease really is, is a legacy we're putting on our grandchildren. It took 1967 to now, which is what, 50 years, for this disease to uh, begin to show population-level effects in Colorado. So what we're talking about is a disease that will begin, if, if it's established and spreads, as the models predict, to become manifest in Michigan about 2060. So this is, this is essentially a legacy that we give to our, not our children, but our children's children. We'll all be dead by the time these things happen. What I want to know is now that the state of Michigan has a plan in place and how they're going to how they're going to you know try to control this what is and I, I want to start off with the worst case scenario and then end with the best case scenario what what, what does that look like well the, the worst case scenario is that we find additional animals we will do exactly what we have uh, done with this case where we find another animal we'll set up a 
a two-mile two, uh, two intense surveillance zone, a 10-mile enhanced surveillance zone, and a, and a baiting ban for any county that it's touched by that 10-mile uh, circle. So it'll probably expand. The index case right now is uh, 11 and a half miles, I believe, from Eaton County, 11.1 miles from Livingston County. It wouldn't take much, you know, half mile one way or the other to begin to expand. What that expansion means is additional uh, restrictions on baiting and feeding, uh, restrictions on the movement of meat and carcasses, um, changes in license structure, changes uh, the availability of disease control permits. And, you know, something that's a part of this, uh, first off, there are license, you know, wherever CWD appears, it, it produces substantial declines in license purchasing behavior, that's of concern. But even more important, recognize that deer hunting in the state of Michigan is a $2.3 billion business, a $4. billion, something billion dollar business when it comes to all forms of hunting and fishing. This is a big deal to small retailers. It's a big deal to farmers. There are a number of farmers in central Michigan who see their profit every year in terms of their hunting leases. That's a big deal. If they can't get those uh, those lease dollars, I personally know very large producers in the Fowlerville region who often see the m majority of their profit every year in terms of their hunt leases rather than in terms of uh, profit that they make on their crops. As well, there are the legacy consequences to our kids and the potential overall threat to the perception of Michigan as a tourist destination. Michigan, uh, the tourist industry in the state, is a $22.3 billion industry, and it's built on the backbone of wildlife, fisheries, and other forms of outdoor recreation. That's a big deal. Is, <laughs> is, a there, big a, deal. is there a potential, and I'm talking about worst-case scenario, and I know and just because I watch a lot of movies, is there a, um, a chance where CWD – becomes kind of like an extinction level event no no it's a very slow moving disease so animals are infected and they can survive for many years uh, before they even begin to express the disease it's a, the disease ultimately the the neurological uh, consequences that that you see in a cwd uh, deer uh, take many years to manifest, and that's because of the accumulation of these corrupted proteins or prions in their brains, which means that, uh, you know, take three or four or five years. This particular animal that we saw, we have no idea when she was infected, but it was a six-year-old doe with twin butt fawns. She could have been infected for a couple of years uh, before, before she began to act strangely. So, again, uh, uh, that's part of it. By the way, the animal, uh, within about four to five, I think sometime less than a year after infections, begins to actually uh, uh, distribute prions and urine feces very heavily. In fact, probably healthy-looking animals, there's some evidence to su suggest that they are, are more likely to spread prions in the environment than ones that are, that are, that are going downhill fast. When the disease becomes manifest, it becomes a, a very short progression from that animal looks sick till that animal is dead. So if that's if that's the case where these animals can be infected and and you know releasing the the prion or prion um, for a long period of time, is it even 
realistically possible that this is the only deer infected in this area if this deer has likely been infected and spreading some level of contamination around is that even a, an optimistic or a realistic potential case that's possible just recently or a couple of years ago new york had two positive deer uh they they i believe that they may have traced that those both of those deer to a, a taxidermy operation that was was processing CWD positive deer from out of state. They were able to kill those two deer, and they haven't seen another case of CWD since. Likewise, Minnesota had a few cases in free-ranging deer. They were very aggressive in their response, and they have yet to detect any more. You know, remember that Michigan, eight years ago, had a CWD positive doe in a high-fence operation, a privately-owned servant operation, in Kink, which we found because we work closely with the industry, and the industry is very, very interested in the, the health of their animals and the risks that they present. That one animal was all we ever saw that. I guarantee, I, I have no idea, that animal did not drop from the heavens CWD positive. There, there must have been some other connection there, but again, we've never seen anything else. This one animal eight years ago, and they were done. So maybe we're lucky again. It's entirely it's possible, it's within the realm of possibility that we'll be lucky, and this is the only animal, perhaps, that uh, had contact with some contamination someplace or who knows what, uh, and uh, this is the only animal. Yeah, wow. I think, uh, I guess we all hope that that's the case because I think the worst case scenario that you painted there is a scary proposition for all of us and future generations. And I know a lot of other people in states where CW, CWD has been popping up, there are those concerns. Um, now, something you mentioned just a second ago, the, the incident eight years ago with a captive deer herd, um, that one deer that was found to be infected there. What, what do you believe or how do you feel about the captive deer industry and the risks that it poses to our wild deer herd. I know there's been a lot of debate across a number of other states um, about this very thing where people are concerned about the idea of the captive deer industry either growing or being deregulated in their states because of that potential CWD risk. And I was just at the North American Deer Summit a few weeks ago where there's a very large discussion on this very topic with representatives from the captive deer industry and you know other people from the, the free-range hunting industry and, and community, um, and a lot of conflicting opinions and beliefs on that, and, and some people saying, well, it, the, the, the risk of CWD is overblown, while the, the hunters are you know very concerned about it. Where do you... Where do you stand on that? Is that something you're concerned about, the increase in the captive deer herd, um, captive deer industry across the state, and how it might impact our, our wild herds? Well, actually, we have fewer high-fence operations, uh, privately-owned servant operations, than we had eight years ago. Uh, they are very closely regulated. Occasionally, their operations are out of compliance, and those, those operations are dealt with. The vast majority of folks that are in that business are very concerned with the health of their animals and also the potential impacts on wildlife. I'm not going to go into, you know, the ethics or the morality of one thing or, or another. I will say, and this is interesting, if you go and, and look at uh, the sort of the incidence of CWD across the United States, where it occurs and where it doesn't, whether it's in free-ranging and captive, whether it's in captive only uh, or in free-ranging only, the data are not as compelling as some might want you to believe, which is to say about 50% of the time it seems to have perhaps a nexus with captive operations, about 50% of the time it does not. 
So one could easily make the argument that it's free-ranging deer that, that infected captive deer as the other way around. And remember, the genesis of this problem most likely was in a, in a captive mule deer pen where they've been holding uh, sheep positive for scrapie at Colorado State University in 1967. This had nothing to do with the high pens or the captive cervid industry initially. If anything, they're more concerned with the health of their animals than perhaps some of our hunters. Just sort of food for thought there, because I know, for example, we get lots of guys that are perfectly willing to bait and feed, even they know it's illegal. The vast lots of guys. I know in Kent County we had less than 40% compliance with mandatory head check, um, and I, our, our compliance with the, with the captive servant industry is way higher than that. So it's it's an interesting discussion if you take the, the ethics and the morality and set them aside. You know, I, I don't hunt high fence operations. I'm not interested in doing that. On the other hand, if you talk about biosecurity and 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 uh, trying to do the right thing around disease concerns, I'm I'm very convinced that the captive servant industry in the state of Michigan is doing an excellent job. And uh, we have a little work to do with our hunting community. What's the current punishment on not uh, obeying the rules set forth for this, uh, this new plan? It's pretty trivial, and the likelihood of getting caught is small. Is that because you the know, budget and, for, for follow-through is low? Oh, we couldn't. You, you know, ultimately, as with most wildlife-related crime, we depend on the public to do the right thing. Now we have more conservation officers in the field than we've had in a long, long time, and it's still not more than one officer per county. One officer per county is not going to catch a lot of guys doing bad things if they're even marginally discreet about what they do. We depend on people doing the right thing because it is the right thing to do, because they want to be conservationists, because they do care about their kids, they do care about the legacy of the sport, and uh, ultimately, if people don't, we can't stop them. There isn't, you know, that's, that's you know, it's, it's not a matter of crime and punishment and, and regulation. COs will look for guys and educate folks and try to catch the bad guys. But ultimately, this is about people doing the right thing, reporting people that are illegally dumping carcasses, thinking about things when they bait and feed, not trying to get around the law and say they're, oh, I don't know, feeding birds when it's clear as a heart attack what they're actually up to. That's what we need. We need people doing the right thing for the right reasons and not because they're afraid that law enforcement will sneak up behind them and catch them when they're not looking. Yeah. Well, well I hope that, you know, to everyone listening um, who's in the state of Michigan, especially those who might be in this area affected by this specific incident, um, I do hope that there's a much higher participation rate in these guidelines or these, you know, restrictions or guidelines that you guys are putting forth and how people need to be checking these deer in and notifying you guys about roadkill and all these different things because this kind of um, participation from the citizenship and from the hunters, like you said, is very important and it's the right thing to do. Um, for people that want to get more information about this plan in Michigan, is that available on the DNR website or somewhere easily that we can find that? Oh, absolutely. It's on the front page. You're gonna, there are all kinds of links to our CWD plan as well as the steps that we're taking immediately to uh, move forward. We also, you know, we've, we've done a little work since uh, the uh, case in 
2007, I guess it was, uh, where we have looked at, at the relative risk of things. So, for example, at that time, we banned baiting throughout the lower peninsula of Michigan. This time, we're, we're banning baiting and feeding in three counties. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, from my point of view, just to be perfectly clear, baiting and feeding are bad ideas. They have been bad ideas. They will be bad ideas. They are bad ideas now. It's a little like coming to me and I'm your physician. You say, I smoke unfiltered cigarettes. Should I do that? And I say, no. So you say, well, what if I smoke filtered cigarettes? The answer is still no. What if I just smoke five cigarettes? Bad idea. Don't do that. Having said it, it's an ingrained part of our culture. And I'm not going to change that, and, uh, and, and that's fine. But what we put into place is what we believe are entirely appropriate uh, regulations that we really, really need people to follow. No baiting and feeding in three counties. Turn every one of those heads in. Otherwise, we aren't going to know what we're looking at. And that's important. It's really important. If we act aggressively now, and, and maybe they're just one or two deer, or maybe just one deer, and we get them, maybe we dodge the bullet. Maybe we don't have this problem. Uh, if guys uh, choose not to check heads, choose to move carcasses out of the zone, choose to go ahead and bait and feed, as they may have done in the past, we're going to lose this. It's, we need everybody's help to, to do the right thing for the right reasons because it is important and it does matter. If they're willing to turn in a poacher and feel pretty good about that, these other things that I'm talking about are much more important than catching a guy that shoots a 12-point out of season. That's just bad form, frankly. That's, that's just bad form. It has no biological impact. What we're talking about now could have lasting biological impacts that are entirely irreversible. So folks need to really, I hope they stand up and, and work with us on some of these issues. Yeah, well, well, I'm glad that you're here and able to you know, communicate this uh, because I think even though there's stuff being written out there now, uh, there, there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of he said, he said, she said, and I think it's great to hear directly from you, someone who's working right on this case to, to be able to really give that call to action. And we'll be sure to, to make sure to inform people and keep people um, keep people honest about that. So it sounds like it sounds like you know right now people in that core area the the deer population is going to be significantly reduced in the short term it's probably going to hurt for those people but if they do the right thing and they they and they follow these actions that we might be able to save this thing for the larger herd biologically across the state and uh, it's important to do that so dan do you have any other questions for um for us about CWD before we move on to, to some more fun topics. Yeah. I, and this is kind of like the science behind it. Um, currently there's no cure for this, this prion, correct? That's correct. Now, is there any research or genetic testing or, or something that's in place to potentially find a way to, um, rid the prion from nature? Or I guess what is, prions place in nature well prions of course are 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 natural you've got them i've got them everybody's got them as far as i know but these are these are are prions that have been corrupted in terms of their structure and essentially what they do is is uh attach and corrupt other proteins in the, in the central nervous system there's an abundance of work uh going on in a variety of laboratories uh, looking at ways to either stop or reverse the effects of prions as, as, you know, in, in, in various disease states. 
and that includes in in uh, deer. Um, there really isn't a lot of promise there uh, at the present time. Uh, we don't uh, completely understand how they do what they do. Uh, all we know is their overall effect. You can think of our knowledge of prions now is about what our knowledge of viruses was about, uh, I don't know, 1920. Uh, we have a long way to go before we have a, a good, uh, a, a good uh, medically useful understanding of how to, uh, how to manage prions. But that work continues, and there's a lot of emphasis on it to, uh, to see what, we, what might be done. And then, of course, to find, if, if it's possible, to find some sort of a delivery uh, strategy that we could use to uh, work with wild populations. At present, however, there is no, you know, the disease is invariably fatal. It does appear that there's some genetic variation in deer so that some deer take longer to die than others. They all die, but some take a little longer than others. Uh, so we have a long way to go before we can say with any confidence that we are headed in the right direction towards, um, towards a cure, I guess, would be a way of putting that. Well, I certainly hope, uh, you know, given all that, that that this is going to be an isolated incident because it, it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of bright things on the horizon when it comes to that. Um, so I guess continuing on this fun note here, shifting to another disease that I know you had to deal with and Michigan hunters and many others across the Midwest had to deal with relatively recently, um, hemorrhagic disease. We had a huge outbreak in 2012 and in 2007 as well across many states in the Midwest. And I know that you personally, um, you know, working in Michigan felt those effects, I'm sure in, in mid Michigan and across a lot of the counties where many of our listeners hunt, um, we got just hammered with EHD. Um, can you give us a brief primer kind of like you did for CWD a few minutes ago? Can you give us a brief primer on hemorrhagic disease and how that affects whitetails? And then uh, I think me and Dan had a few more questions about, you know, what that means for hunters and, and what that means moving forward. Before we get into the topic of EHD, we need to pause briefly for a word from our friends at Sika Gear who support this podcast. Now, last week on the show, we introduced you to Sika Whitetail product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And this week we're going to start grilling him. That said, as some of you know, Sitka's brand new revamped line of whitetail gear launched on June 1st. So my question for Dennis today is this. Who is the new line of whitetail gear for? You know, honestly, so Mark, you know, the namesake of our premium line kind of defines it. And we built this for the fanatic. You know, we built it for the guy who um, is absolutely looking for an advantage. He's absolutely spending just countless time in the woods whether it's every morning and every evening you know before and after work or whatever it might be but the guy who is just driven to to find that animal or 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 be out there as often as he can you know we know that you know when you look at the amount of of design and and make and you know the cost frankly that goes into a product like that you know if you hunt one week or two weeks a year it may not be worth it to you and that's that's okay but you know if you're the guy who spends a lot of time out there you know what's what's comfortable worth you for all those countless hours you spend hanging from you know 25 foot in a tree that's who we built it for so there you have it sick of gears completely new line of whitetail gear for 2015 is for the fanatics the obsessed the addicts sound like anyone you know now back to our conversation with russ and his overview of ehd now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition 
of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Sure. Uh, EHD, actually, interestingly enough, it's, it's, a, it's basically a southeastern United States disease. That's where it's, it's most prevalent, most common. But it was first identified or characterized in Michigan in 1955. Uh, we had uh, an outbreak in 55. We had an outbreak or two in the 60s, uh, maybe one or two in the 70s. And about in the last decade, we've had an outbreak every year someplace. There are six or seven variants of the virus that produces EHD, uh, and they depend on a, a small biting fly to vector from one animal to another. So, you know, the fly bites a deer with EHD, that picks up the virus, goes around, bites some other deer, and transmits the disease. The fly likes very slow-moving water or stagnant water and mud. Uh, So several years ago, two years ago, when we and others across the country, I think just about from Utah all the way to the East Coast, had outbreaks of EHD, uh, we were looking at sort of the, the perfect storm. We had a hot summer, as you recall. It were drought conditions. Deer, of course, would prefer to drink muddy water than clear water. So they were going into these areas that were full of these midges and getting literally thousands of doses of, of EHD. Uh, so it had a significant impact on deer. Unfortunately, it's a really hard uh disease to build regulations around because the effects are very local. The deer are dying uh, right along those water courses or even some portions of water courses. For example, on our uh, 
uh, Muskegon game area where the river was flowing a little faster and had a sandy bottom, we got zero loss or almost no loss. When the river slowed down and the bottom turned muddy, deer were dying right and left. Uh, how do you how do you develop a regulation for that? Or on the Maple River in uh, just north of Lansing here, deer were dying within a mile or so of the river, but if you backed off a couple of miles, they're, we're doing fine. Uh, so it's hard to sort of work that through. Uh, the bright note is that, uh, of course, last year, was uh, a nothing year when it came to EHD. And I anticipate that, you know, um, we probably will have a couple of other, uh, with any luck, some additional years without a, another EHD die-off. Uh, as I said, there are about seven variants to this disease, and it's endemic in Michigan. And so, you know, we anticipate under the right environmental conditions that you that you could see uh periodic die-offs occur, just like they do in other parts of the country. Once deer, and we're sort of at the northern fringes of the, of the disease, you know, we've had it here for 60 years. In the southeast, they've had it forever, longer than 60 years. Eventually, deer here are exposed to a lot of the various variants, and, and what you begin to see is a little conferred immunity. So while the southeast has die-offs, they're much less dramatic than they would be, for example, in a naive population like deer in southern Michigan. So we'll continue to see EHD outbreaks into the future. They probably will be less, uh, certainly less uh, uh, large than they were, you know, a couple of years ago. Because, again, we've had these outbreaks every year for the last decade. Uh, it's just that there was that one notable one a couple of years ago. EHD does not transmit to other species. Occasionally, because the virus is very like blue tongue, you can see it in cattle if they get enormous amounts of virus in them. You can actually make a cow sick, but it, it really takes some doing. This is a deer disease, not a, not a livestock disease. It isn't vectored by livestock. I know some folks that were in co-ops were blaming some of their farmer friends for moving livestock and moving disease. And as it turns out, that's just patently untrue. Uh, they were just wanting to be mad at somebody, and they decided to be mad at a farmer as opposed to just being mad at nature. You know, there wasn't any cause for that. The farming community had anything to do with um, In terms of control strategies, there's not a lot out there. I mean, you could... I guess if you wanted to fog the world, you could, just like you used to, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, fog for mosquitoes, you could fog for midges. There are a lot of really good reasons not to do that. I probably don't have to tell you what they are uh, from, from other wildlife, you know, from other species. Um, so there aren't any really practical strategies to control. It's just one of those things that uh, we'll have to look for. On the bright side of all of this, we have come up with, uh, in working with uh, Boone and Crockett uh, Quantitative Wildlife Lab at MSU, come up with some distance sampling estimates so we can give folks, say in a co-op and other places, uh, some tools that they can use pretty easily to understand how many deer they have on their property, which goes to the question of that I get all the time, or my, my biologists do, if you work with a landowner, they'll say, how many deer do I have and how many should I have? And I don't know the answer to the first one, and the second one is kind of personal choice. You know, We've got some tools now as a function of this where we, we, we can help people. They also ask, how long do the effects of EHD last? In the south, uh, you, know, you can expect recovery in anywhere from 5 to 10 years. 
in uh, the studies that we're doing now along the Maple River corridor, we're seeing recovery. It is certain the deer numbers certainly are not back to where they were, but we're beginning to see recovery of populations. And it probably will take five or six years for, for numbers to build back to where they were before the outbreak uh, two years ago. So, so for our listeners, can you describe what they should look for? What, you know, what the, what the symptoms would be, the visible symptoms would be, and then what should a hunter or a land managers, uh, what action plan should they take if they discover a deer infected with EHD or that has died from EHD? What should they do from that standpoint, whether it be in relation to communicating with you guys or from a management standpoint of how should they change their hunting or management strategy if there's an EHD situation occurring? Well, uh, to answer the first question, I mean, once I guess we'll start with the start at the beginning. Uh, an EHD killed deer isn't infected. It isn't infected to anything, so you don't have to worry about that. It's not going to, you know, uh, serve as a source for vector to live deer in the area. The EHD deer are, appear listless because they're hemorrhaging, they're thirsty, so they come to water. You'll find them dead along water courses or in the water uh, because they're bleeding out, essentially, internally, and so, they, so they're, they're looking to rehydrate. Um, you can see some evidence. There are deer that actually recover uh, from EHD, and you see uh, hoof lesions in, in, those, in those deer. And I believe we have those kinds of things both on our website and in pamphlets that we distribute that give, give a pretty good idea of, of what to look for there. As a practical matter, if, if you find evidence of EHD killed deer in your hunting area, since uh, you're unlikely to see the true magnitude of the effect, I suggest you find yourself a different place to hunt. Unless, of course, you just like hanging in a tree like a pumpkin looking for stuff to go by. <laughs> Sound advice. Sound advice. Now... Dan, do you have any other questions about EHD before we we move away from disease? No, I think he pretty much he pretty much covered everything that I was interested in. Okay, awesome. Well, I think that was a a very helpful primer on a on a topic that we never really want to talk about, but it's something that's important for people to understand, especially recently with with CWD in the news and EHD being a big thing over the past couple of years. So, so thank you for all that, Russ. Um, well. There's one last thing, by the way, even if you, I saw some bucks uh, a couple of years ago that we had clearly had, had survived DHD and the hunter said to me, because they were looking a little bit emaciated, had nice racks, but a little emaciated, can I eat this deer? The answer is, yeah, this is not something that bothers humans, uh, and so it's not something to be concerned with, unlike, say, tuberculosis or, or CWD. So on that topic, too, with CWD deer, I've read in the past, at least, I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but i would read that, you know, the, the belief to this point is that, right, it can't be transmitted, it can't hop to humans, so it's okay to eat that meat, but you want to stay away from any spinal fluids or brain fluids, things like that. Is that accurate, or did, would you recommend just not touching, not eating those deer that, that could be infected in that area? I wouldn't eat them. Uh, the World Health Organization, uh, USDA, and our wildlife health professionals are all real clear about that. There's no evidence that it can affect you. Um, none. Zip, zero. Uh, no, uh, you know, in, in, even individual cases. On the other hand, 
Uh, put that in context, when BSE was a concern, mad cow disease was a concern in Britain, it took 12.5 million exposures to contaminated meat to produce about 200 cases. 12.5 million exposures to produce 200 cases. How would you like to be one of the unlucky 200? I think if you have a CWD-positive beer, nobody's that hungry that they couldn't go and either... Uh, hunt another deer or or do something else. I would not uh, feed that deer to my family. So the follow-up question that then, um, when I was at this North American Deer Summit a few weeks ago, there was a panel discussion, a number of different people from within the industry and from the veterinarian services side of things, and one of the main speaking points or concerns was the fact that you can test and you can get a, a positive test for CWD, but there is not a true negative. You can't actually prove that's negative. It's just uh, not positive, I guess, is, is how they were explaining it. Um, so that being the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with that being the case, if I go and if I kill a deer in mid-Michigan this, this fall and I get it tested, it, it doesn't come up as positive, but it's not absolutely negative either. It's just not positive. Is that a deer I, I should feel comfortable eating? Yeah, you can feel very comfortable doing it. Uh, Where they might be going is perhaps you've got an animal with a sufficiently low concentration of prions that uh, wouldn't show up on the multiple tests that we would do. You know, any time that we do this, we do a variety of things, uh, looking for the potential for disease. Uh, uh, CWD is a disease of the sensual nervous system, not even so much the peripheral nervous system. And in those cases, uh, you know, it's rare instances where you, the animal, had it lived, would be CWD positive, but it doesn't show up on the test. Those few prions that are there are very likely almost exclusively in the central nervous system and almost exclusively in the brain. So as long as you're deboning the meat, not you know running your saw through the spinal column and then back out into the meat, for example, there's a, the, the chances of actually contaminating the meat in a way that you could find prions is vanishingly small. Okay. All right. Well, I think that that is a good thing for for everyone to know, especially living in these different areas now where that's that's potential. Um, so moving away from disease, uh, now we don't often get a chance to talk to someone in your position who's you know on the other. I don't want to say on the other side of the table, but to some degree, hunters feel like we're on separate sides of the table. The wildlife management agencies and the hunters. And those relationships can sometimes be sticky. I, there's, you know, all of if you look in the current in the news today or you know in the past year, there's been lots of concerns in a number of states with hunters um, not happy with how they believe their agency is man- managing the deer herd because the deer herd is being reduced too much, or maybe they're not happy with one thing or another. And there seems to be a lot of headbutting there. Can you uh-huh. can you talk a little bit about first, you know? what that challenge has been like for you and your team in Michigan. And then second, how do we improve that relationship between hunters and our agency representatives? Well, there, there are, actually there's there maybe three things to talk about here. First, uh, it's interesting when you talk about hunter satisfaction uh, because it, it, it's, a, it's a topic that depends very heavily on the amount of public land that's present in a state. So, if you look at hunter satisfaction in Pennsylvania, and these are actual numbers. I had one of our guys look at it. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. If you, the uh, hunter satisfaction in uh, Ohio, Indiana, uh, and Iowa, and southern Minnesota 
is in the 60s and 70s. Uh, Pennsylvania is in the high 30s to low 40s. Uh, Michigan's usually in the uh, mid to high 40s, and Wisconsin's a couple of points behind. So here's your rhetorical question. What is the difference between Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania and the rest of the states that I mentioned? The answer, of course, is that those three states are public land states and the rest are private land states. So in a sense, one sense uh, in, in the three states, there's uh, somebody you complain to. They got a telephone number and an email address. It, otherwise, you're sort of asking a guy, do you think you are a good beer manager? And who's going to say, no, I suck? The point being is that, uh, that in, in a lot of these, these cases, folks actually have somebody to blame. The other story along those lines is if you go back and look at Aldo Leopold's biography and you look in the end notes and you look at the comments and concerns and complaints that he got as a wildlife commissioner in the late 40s in Wisconsin, um, some things never change because the letters that he got uh, if, if you set them down side by side with mine, the difference, the principal difference between his letters and mine is that his guys had good penmanship. <laughs> they are exactly the same issues. There are too many deer. There are too few deer. You're putting me out of business. Uh, they're eating all the blah, 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 blah. Exactly. Word for word for word. Uh, it's the same thing. So people like this, you know, they, they don't like government, and, and, and it's sort of, it's a very convenient thing to do if there's public land to complain about the way you think that land should be managed. But on the other side, I think there are some things you can do about this. For one, uh, you can engage in a more genuine partnership with your stakeholders. So, for example, here in Michigan, um, we've, we've done a number of things. We have the Pheasant Restoration Initiative, which is this broad-based partnership of all of the groups of the MDNR as just one of the individual organizations at the table, and no more important than any of the others. We've done the same thing around waterfowl. We've done the same thing around deer. We've done the same thing around uh, management of bear populations. Uh, we have the only consensus-driven wolf plan in North America. It turns out I'm not sure how how far that got us in the end, but we've got it. The point is, you know, work with your stakeholders and 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 try to establish dialogue with them. And the general rule there is it's harder to be mad at somebody that you know, uh, as, as opposed to a nameless, faceless somebody that you can be mad at because you because you don't know. That doesn't work with everybody. It won't work with everybody all of the time. But at the end of the day, trying to be as open with people and to involve them in the management of their resources, because ultimately the agencies are, are trust managers, and, and we manage these things in trust with the people. We are more than happy to work with folks, which is why when we got our license increase, 50% of that license increase goes out to grant, in grants and aids to our partners, 50%. Of that goes back, I'll repeat that, 50% of the wildlife license increase goes back out to partners. And those partners could be the organizations that everybody knows, or as well as local sportsmen's groups or, or county conservation club to try to restore some sense of a conservation community in Michigan, because that's how you get around that point. We need a conservation community where, where the agency is just one among many working to maintain and restore Michigan's natural resources, which is a big deal. I'll give you another rhetorical question. What is the difference 
Michigan's a natural resources state. So it's Idaho, Montana, Utah, uh, Oregon, and Washington. What's the difference between Michigan and the rest of those states? And the answer is that Michigan's natural resources are restored through 120 years of dedicated effort by certain legislators, by the Department of Natural Resources and sportsmen. 120 years ago, Michigan, to put it nicely, didn't look anything like it did today, does today. The land was burned over, not once, but twice, three times. There were no trees. There were no wildlife. The water was polluted. We put it back. We put it back. We have restored Michigan. Michigan and its natural resources are contrived because of heavy-duty management from the public, from the agency, working together. It's in everybody's best interest. So the agency these days, Wildlife Division especially, is very interested in restoring that conservation community and working with her partners to make sure that natural resources are protected and grown in the state of Michigan. It's, it's pretty incredible, too. I think so many of us don't have that perspective in, or the history at all. You know, a lot of us, you know, personally me, I'm 28, 27 or 28 years old, I'm not sure. Um, 27 years old, I think, and I you know, didn't live in a time when we didn't have tremendous natural resources in this state. So I think a lot of us lose that perspective and forget that a lot of hard work and partnership is responsible for where we are today. Um, mm-hmm. Now, that said, you mentioned the fact that you know your, your, your team's responsibility is to manage the, the natural resources and the public trust and, and balance a lot of different stakeholders. A common complaint that is heard from, you know, or that I hear from other hunters is that the voice of deer hunters or the concerns of deer hunters aren't necessarily weighted as heavily as others being maybe the timber industry or the agricultural industry or insurance companies or different things like that. Those are typical things that are thrown out there as reasons why maybe a state's wildlife agency is quote unquote, driving the deer herd into the ground. These are the things that people say. Uh So can you, can you tell us how does the deer hunters voice and concerns and uh, the things that we value, where does that rank in regards to the rest of the stakeholders at the table? And how is that taken into um, taken into consideration when determining how to manage the deer herd and what those numbers need to be? Well, I think uh, first off the only, but let's, let's, I love that. The insurance company one, the only thing I know about insurance companies is that they take my money and raise my rates. If my kid backs into the garage wall, (laughs) that's, that's what I know about insurance companies. We don't talk to them. They don't talk to us. We get their statistics. That's, because it turns out deer getting hit on the road are a pretty good index of abundance. Think of a car as a giant bullet with, with electric windows that runs 365 days a year. But uh, for some of those others, I invite people to come to a commission meeting. If you don't think that the commission, the jurisdictional body uh, for, wildlife, uh, for natural resources in the state, doesn't take deer hunters seriously, I invite anybody to come. Or watch the MUCC podcast, which happens live every single commission meeting. And you just take it in. I dare anybody to say nobody takes deer seriously. At the same time, if you look at what we do in our natural, uh, in, our, in, our, in our state forest, deer equals timber harvest. Timber harvest equals deer. They are the same thing, which is why the Wildlife Division, in equal partnership with the Forest Resources Division, manages timber production in the state. There wouldn't be healthy deer populations in the state if we weren't always optimizing with forest resources. 
some folks don't like that. Some people say, gee whiz, you know, I like those old growth forests. From a wildlife point of view, I don't. You want to have healthy populations, that means clear cuts. And big ones, because big clear cuts are good for deer, they're good for grouse, they're good for woodcock, they're good for snowshoe hare, they're good for turkeys, they're good for elk, and they're good for moose. I like them. We're going to continue to do them from a wildlife point of view. I'm not really as interested in the aesthetics of things. Uh, otherwise, when people say, oh, golly, they, they never listen to us, you know, I, you know I, I'm not sure. I, I guess people just need to come and watch the process. The Wildlife Division makes recommendations to a commission. That commission is seven individuals appointed over multiple administrations, so there isn't any political bias there. Those individuals all hunt and fish. They are very interested in the resource, and they try to make the very best decisions that they can. I think folks sometimes get wrapped around axles like, oh, gee, uh, I'll give you a great one. Folks will say to me, you know, we need to get rid of those youth seasons in the, in the, in, at, the, at the beginning of the year. Oh, my golly, those kids are shooting all the deer. Or we need to get rid of that late antler season. Oh, my golly, the department couldn't care about our deer because they're getting killed. Well, I'll tell you what, 2.3% of the deer in the state of Michigan are shot in those early seasons. 3.3% of the deer are shot in the late antler season. 7% are shot in muzzleloader, 33% are shot in archery season, and the rest is firearm. You want to monkey with deer numbers, but fooling with the edges. Let's talk about some other things here, which is one of the opportunities that we have with standardized multiple-year regulations. Maybe it is time to look at our regulatory structure when we come back to it in a couple of years here and ask whether the structure that we have is appropriate. Maybe you do want to change some things up, and maybe not just at the edges. You know, we have a, a muzzleloader season, perhaps based on the fact that we used to shoot, you know, folks would take a flintlock, and the victory was having the gun go off, much less having a deer shot. <laughs> I'm pretty sure inlines don't work that way. I'm pretty sure I could swim underwater across the lake, pop up in the reeds on the other side, and kill a deer with my muzzleloader, my inline. You know, it's, it's, it is, by, by any definition, a very sophisticated piece of equipment. Likewise, crossbows. Likewise, compound bows. We have this terribly long archery season, perhaps because it was really hard to kill deer with a stick bow. And it is hard to kill deer with a stick bow. Not so much with a compound or a, or a crossbow. Maybe we do need to rethink some of these things. And it's not just about regulations. You know, if you look at changes over the last 20 years. We've got tree stands. We've got baiting. We've got high-end optics. We've got better firearms. We've got better uh, archery equipment. Boys, you know, maybe it's time that we think about our own ethics in some of these situations as opposed to looking at the department and saying, you know, if we just tweaked the antlerless regulations or we tweaked how many points a, a, a buck had to have, by golly, the world would be good. Maybe we would need to think about the ethics of our own pursuits a little bit just, just as part of that conversation, not saying it's the only piece, and think about what hunters can do as well as our ethics and our equipment and our abilities have changed. Trail cams? Are you kidding me? You can, you can trail cam up your property and pattern a deer from the comfort of your study while you're watching reruns on TV, you know, dangerous and naked and alive or whatever. You can watch TV and pattern deer on your property. That sounds pretty sporty to me, but a lot of guys do it, right? Maybe we need to rethink some of these things just a little bit. And I think it, it's upon everyone in the community, not just the Department of Natural Resources, to engage in that conversation. 
Yeah. You uh you touched on a lot of a lot of hot button topics, I think, that a lot of people all have different varying opinions on. And to your point, a lot of it comes down to the personal the personal responsibility and starting starting to, you know, think about these things ourselves. Um so with that in mind, if 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 you were able to make changes, if you were able to control and manage the deer herd in Michigan to your the way you think would be best for science and management, all these things, without the politics and without needing needing to just, you know, balance stakeholders and, and all these things just to appease different parties, if you could just do what you believed was the right way to manage the deer herd in Michigan. Would you would you be make would you make any changes today? If, if there were a handful of things you could do right now, if you didn't have to please this person or that person, what would those couple things be? Well, you know, I think the first thing I really want to understand is what what our hunting community really wants. You know, what I want personally as a hunter is less important than what the majority of hunters in the state of Michigan want. There is a there is a change going on, and no doubt if you look at sort of the demographics of our deer hunting communities, uh, older guys tend to be less interested in, in antler point restrictions and so forth than younger guys do. I see a, a sort of change coming. There's much more interest in private lands management for deer, I think, than there probably was 25 or 30 years ago. There's some changes there. And so, uh, you know, the my responsibility is to try to provide the the deer hunting experience, the deer population structure that the greatest number of our hunters want, realizing that because hunting is a secular theology, that if that that by that very definition, even though I'm pleasing the greatest number of people, I will make people on either end of, of that majority violently angry with what I've suggested. There's no question about that. Uh, this is uh, you know, somebody said to me the other day, you need to look at satisfied hunters. If you were selling shoes, by golly, you'd be out of business. And I said, uh, young man, selling shoes is easy. You know, I'm just buying shoes. I don't sell shoes. I sell worldviews. And so in my case, I'm actually looking at a secular theology. I'm sort of saying, you know what? Young man, would you like to be a Presbyterian? Well, you don't want to be a Presbyterian? Well, let me suggest Methodism to you. You know, it's a very complicated thing. What comes, you know, what is satisfaction? Is it the size of the deer, the number of deer that you see, your experience in the woods, your lack of conflict with others, how far you have to travel or not? Uh, how much, you know, there's, there's all of these pieces, and none of those pieces is necessarily less important than another. So I could make, uh, you know, big deer, say, you know, just magically make some big deer. Uh, but restrict your access to them in some way. That would make some people very happy and other people just so mad they couldn't see straight. I could uh, make a lot of deer, uh, but not so many big ones. And that was, some folks would think that's just the cat's, uh, cat's meow. And other people would write me nasty letters telling me they're only going to hunt in Indiana and Illinois. Uh, you know, so there, this, isn't a, this isn't really a solvable question. Again, going back to Leopold, if you read his letters, it's depressing. Uh, you'll, the, the same spectrum of beliefs and preferences was present then as now, with the exception that there's this gradual movement toward more of a quality deer management uh, perspective in the hunting population. So I anticipate, you know, a decade or two from now, that's probably uh, where we will be. Uh, 
because even though we're sort of a big box state, we are a quantity rather than a quality state, unlike a boutique state like, uh, oh, I don't know, some of our Midwest neighbors to the south. You know, I'll, I'll pick a sort of a not controversial example. Nevada is a high-quality mule deer state. Nevada is a high-quality elk state. Nevada has 23,000 resident and non-resident tags in the tag pool. I was the game chief in Nevada for a few years. 23,000. Hold that in mind. We have more people crossing the border to hunt deer in this state from Ohio and Indiana alone than the entire tag pool in the state of Nevada. The entire tag pool, resident and non-resident combined. The point being, uh, you know, it's going to be a gradual movement, uh, I I think, you know, and it it will move over time in various ways. But uh, the, the function of the department should be not to to require people to do things or or to uh, uh, I don't know people want us to lead in a direction, but mostly people want us to lead where they want us to go. Good leadership is uh, from is is always in the eye of the beholder, so it's a hard question to to plumb. To be honest with you. Yeah, and it sounds like you've got a hard job to do. It's a thankless job, I'd say. Uh, it seems like it must be at times. Well, actually, uh, it's a lot better than working for a living. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I enjoy doing what I do because I think what I do is important, it's important to me personally. So, so uh, I, I'm good with that. Yeah. I'm good with my opportunity, sir. Very good. So, so Dan, what are, you, what are you thinking over there? Do you have any questions for Russ? I know we've, we've talked about this topic of agency hunter relations a lot. What are you thinking? I, my my only thing is some because because there are so many people that have their own opinions. Isn't it best that the um, that that the government agency puts their you know their best guys on it? And I guess what I'm trying to say is my opinion of the government agencies is they're doing what is best for the whole picture and and not what affects you know one guy on his property versus the other uh, guy on on the next property they're trying to preserve um, you know this way of living this you know and keeping it so that we can continue to hunt you know yeah some of us has to have to sacrifice some things at times but they're doing it for the greater good and I think a lot of people just don't get that yeah, I think there's some truth to that. It's just what you're saying there, Russ, the fact that you know, you have to balance a lot of things and that there's always going to be someone on either end who um, who doesn't see things the way you do. So It's uh, it's all right. You know, the other part is that one of the gratifying pieces, I, I rarely deal with people that really don't care about the resource as much as I do. It's just that they happen to disagree with me uh, on something, <laughs> which is fine, and, and, and that's okay. Uh, listen, boys, I've got to actually, uh, I've got to I'm stop coming in right now. I'm going to have to uh, leave you now, but it's a little after five to move on to my next adventure. Yes, that's that's perfectly fine. We really appreciate your time, Russ. This has been eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people and interesting and um, an important discussion. So thank you for, for taking this time to explain a lot of these things and, and share your perspective from uh, from a wildlife agency. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. All right, Russ, have a great afternoon. Thanks again. You bet. Bye-bye. 
All right, well, that is going to be it for us today on the podcast. Now, before we shut things down, though, I do want to give a quick thank you to our partners who help make the Wired to Hunt podcast possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you for joining us today. I hope you found this discussion with Russ interesting and helpful. And also, of course, I hope you have a great week and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.